Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so, Rav, would you like to tell everybody all about it and invite them in yourself? Yes, everyone is welcome in our chat room. We have people who come and just watch what we do. They lurk in the background. Other people come and say hello and... You know, and then just pay attention to what's going on and other people chat up a storm. It's a great group of people. Um, I always learn lots from them and we have a few laughs too. It certainly adds a whole new depth to the subject matter that's being discussed on the air. So um, I think it's absolutely fabulous. If you can join us, do so. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. And if you're listening someplace where for all intent and purposes you uh, can't get to the chat room. You're driving in your car or something. Uh, you often show movies in the chat room. The chat room log sometimes has a guest or someone get in that you post orals, etc. How do those listeners ever get back to see what was going on? Oh, simply go back to provocativeenlightenment.com, click on archives, find the particular show, and you will see the chat log there. So you can, you know, read through the chat log as you're replaying the show. And it's worth going back to replay the show periodically. Um, I've done that a few times, and I've been amazed at how much more I've learned from it. So, All right. Today's spotlight is a bit provocative because I wish to discuss unity. It seems we are living at a time when divisiveness in our society is higher than I have ever known it to be in my lifetime. And it's not just a divide that's troubling. There's also so much vehement vitriol that underlies the divide. So one might fairly question, what is this divide really all about? Take, for example, this past week's fervor over standing or not before our flag during the national anthem. Now, don't get me wrong, because I am totally behind the right to demonstrate in our cherished First Amendment. But that said, what is the objective I mean, we are a nation of diverse ethnicity with varying religious beliefs, differing opinions about values and even some norms, and yet we are one people bound together as one nation whose flag and anthem represents our unity. I watched the Dallas Cowboys all take a knee and then stand before the flag during the national anthem. I get that. They were protesting and being respectful at the same time. And the same is true of teams like the Seattle Seahawks, who remained in the dressing room rather than dishonor the anthem. But what are they protesting? Is the protest against Trump's obscene words, against racial issues, against our criminal justice system, against the values that America holds dear, or just what? And if it is, what does the action of kneeling during the anthem accomplish? Is the goal to further the divide in the country? If so, it appears to be working. I understand a gold star mother stated that her breath was arrested when she witnessed the kneeling for the first time, since her son came home with a flag draped over his coffin. Just imagine how she might feel. Think of all the men and women who have paid the ultimate price so we can all, here at home, peacefully demonstrate against what we see as injustices. Everywhere the news is reporting this kneeling action is a protest. Is it really? If I change the context some and think about a military funeral, then I can see the entire matter differently. In a military funeral, after the flag is taken off the casket of a fallen military member, it is smartly folded 13 times and then presented to the parent, spouse, or child of the fallen member by a fellow service member while kneeling. 
If only I could think that kneeling was honoring those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice to provide us with a safety to protest, then the kneeling would be honorable. Do you think the players intend the kneeling this way? Patrick Henry is quoted as saying, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Every man and woman who has ever served this country at home or abroad would agree with this statement, for it is a part of what our country, our flag, and our anthem stands for. I strongly agree with Patrick Henry as well as Thomas Paine, who insisted upon this, and I quote, I have always strenuously supported the right of every man to his own opinion, however different that opinion might be to mine. He who denies to another this right makes a slave of himself to his present opinion because he precludes himself the right of changing it. Close quote. This notwithstanding, I must again ask, what are we accomplishing when the very nature of the protest divides good people against one another? When the act is one of ignoring our union as one people, for we are all Americans. What's next? Burning the flag during the anthem? I wish President Trump had refrained from expressing his disgusting remarks toward this sort of protest, but I also wish that we would all remember that we are first, last, and always united as one America. Sure, we have many opportunities to make America better, but only if we all work together in an effort to unite instead of divide. We don't need a divider-in-chief, and as Americans, we certainly can do better than be baited into attacking one another for the flag that stands for all of us. My thoughts anyway. Ravinder, what are yours? Oh, I think it's a really complex, divisive issue. You know, it's really hard to talk about it seriously with people because they've all got you know their definite viewpoints what i can say there is definite confusion over what is being protested um you know we do have some idea of what kaepernick sorry almost forgot his name then kaepernick was protesting but all the other footballers weren't protesting until trump spoke up so uh, were they supporting what kaepernick is protesting about were they uh protesting against Trump were they I don't know what what is being protested what I can say is the whole issue is extremely sad you know the fact is we are one nation and that is symbolized by the anthem and the flag um, and then what is more American than football other than apple pie of course um, so a football <laughs> baseball game baseball and apple pie dear I know you're an immigrant Oh, well, <laughs> never, it's close enough. To me, it's football, okay? I mean, baseball is just rounders to me, so okay. what can I say? But a football game should be a time of unity, bringing everyone together. It's supposed to be, you know, that that big event. So, no, I find it all really sad. Yeah, it's our recreation. We don't need it polluted. I agree. <clears throat> all right, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last live show featured Russ Harris, and we discussed his book, The Confidence Gap. Amy wrote, loved your show with Russ. His ideas have prompted me to change some attitudes in my own life. Richard wrote, one more really great show. I love Russ Harris's insight and perspective on the human creature we are. It is so liberating to abandon ineffective ideas and get on board with concepts that actually work in life with no surprise backlash later. CB commented, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. I love that quote, CB. Moving on, Sam wrote, Hi, Eldon. I want you to know how much your products have affected my life in the positive. I use the InterTalk Bodybuilding, Quantum Younging, and Fitness MP3s when working out. My attitude towards working out has changed. I used to see it as a drudgery. Now, after using your products, I can't wait to work out. I really enjoy it. So thanks to you, I'm a changed person. I believe, and luck and success are mine. Good for you, sir. 
Marta wrote, thank you, Eldon. I have never met you, but your Intertalk CDs have been fabulous. Thank you. God bless. And finally, Ovi wrote, the best explanation of limiting beliefs, the box of beliefs we all have. And one of the best tools to get out of it, Intertalk. And I speak from experience. I have used speaking in public and self-confidence programs with great, great results after a week. Highly recommended. Thank you, Eldon. Well, thank you, Ovi, and all of you for your letters and feedback. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your comments, so keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas, and I hope you'll all write me about the flag as well, and I'm sure some of you will beat me up, but that's okay, we'll read those letters too. Now to today's show, Technocracy in America, Rise of the Info State, with author Dr. Parag Khanna. Dr. Khanna argues in his new book that American democracy just isn't good enough anymore. Quoting, a costly election has done more to divide American society than unite it, while trust in a government and democracy itself is plummeting. But there are better systems out there, and America would be wise to learn from them. In this provocative manifesto, globalization scholar Parag Khanna tours cutting-edge nations from Switzerland to Singapore to reveal the inner workings that allow them that lead the way in managing the volatility of a fast-changing world while delivering superior welfare and prosperity for their citizens. Close quote. Okay, this show definitely promises to be provocative. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Dr. Parag Khanna is a leading global strategist, world traveler, and best-selling author. He is a senior research fellow in the Center of Asia and Globalization at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore. He is also the managing partner of Hybrid Reality, a boutique geostrategic advisory firm, and co-founder and CEO of Factotum, a leading content branding agency. He was named one of Esquire's 75 most influential people of the 21st century and featured in Wired Magazine's Smart List. He holds a Ph.D. from London School of Economics and a Bachelor's and Master's degree from the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He has traveled to more than 100 countries and is a young global leader of the World Economic Forum. Okay, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Parag Khanna. Here I am. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. It's good to have you, sir. I enjoyed your book. It's a challenging read. I can tell you that. Marvelous ideas, but they are challenging. We'd like to know three things on this show, Dr. Khanna. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So let's begin by telling us about yourself and what led you to write Technocracy in America. Well, thank you. That is um, a great framework for breaking things down. Uh, so who is the messenger? Well, uh, I appreciate your generous introduction. And uh, as you can tell, um, I'm, I'm actually from the East Coast, <laughs> from New York, uh, where I grew up. I'm a political scientist by training and academic, but I've uh, served in the U.S. military as an advisor uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. I've been very involved in think tanks and um, sort of strategic thinking around what our foreign policy needs to be. I haven't written so much about domestic issues, but in the last few years since I've become an expat living abroad, first in London and then in Singapore, I've kind of got this outside view now around how the rest of the world views us and what other political systems are out there that I've been observing in the course of all of the books that I've written. So this technocracy book is the latest in a kind of a series of five books that I've been writing about kind of the state of the world and the flow of ideas around the world. And this time I wanted to take on not just big strategic geopolitical issues, but domestic political ones. You know, what is the best form of government for us? And the title of the book is a play on words because uh, many of your uh, listeners will be familiar with the classic uh, book by Alexis de Tocqueville called Democracy in America. He was, yes. of course, a French a journalist and scholar, and he traveled to America as an outsider uh, to write about the state and the virtues, really, of our democratic system. Uh, that was, of course, a couple of hundred years ago. So I call this book Technocracy in America because, interestingly enough, the idea of technocracy, the idea that there is a role 
for a qualified uh, group of experts who know how to not only have big ideas and have academic qualifications, but know how to actually govern bureaucracies and administer the state, the government, that those people need to have a mediating role in our democratic system to take all the different interest groups and ideas and priorities and juggle them and assemble them and figure out what the correct middle path is. That's actually an idea that goes back to the French uh, system from a couple of hundred years ago. Now, looking around the Western world, obviously no government is perfect, certainly not the French, not the German, and not our own. But what I wanted to do is to take this reconciliation of democracy and technocracy and bring it together and kind of craft what a better political system would be. And I want everyone to know that I did write this book uh, long before Donald Trump was elected president. Um, you know, this is a, a mini book that was actually the final chapter, the final section of my previous book, Connectography, uh, Mapping the Future of Global Civilization. Connectography is a big fat book with a lot of maps that really talks about the role of connectivity and complexity in this emerging world. And so I wanted to end the book with a, um, with a kind of meditation around what is the best form of government for this new reality of a complex, connected world where all of us are struggling to, uh, you know, sort of maintain stability amidst all of the, all of the many trends and, and, and sort of complications, whether it's domestic policy, foreign policy, strategic issues, economic issues. Leaders find themselves in a desperate attempt to order this situation just for their own countries, for their own people. So I wrote this whole thing about, uh, you know, sort of a technocratic system that could cope with this world of connectography. And, um, and of course, the book was too long, so we had to cut it out. So that was finished a couple of years ago. And then before Trump was elected, I said, you know what, whatever happens in this election, this has been very, very divisive. And the whole point of democracy, and this is, I think, something that was very nice in the meditation that you were in your editorial, really, at the top of the hour, um, saying that, you know, at the end of the day, we're supposed to be one united country. And yet it felt like the election was doing the exact opposite. So my motivation was to say was to ask the question, well, what kind of government is going to deliver us back to that sense of unity? What are the things that a government should do if it wants its people to actually feel like they belong to the same country? And those are the questions that I started to try and answer in this book. And again, it really stems from being an academic, being a political scientist, um, this being a sequel to my previous book, but also the fact that now as an expat, I have this, um, you could say, a luxurious position or at least a different point of view um, by living abroad and getting to see all of the other governments in the world and hopefully providing some insight into what we can do better if we learn from them. All right. Now, you, you took on something. So before we get into the book, I mean, I found your ideas about global connectivity exciting. So I, I want you to take a moment and inform us of how the rise of megacities and global connectivity is changing the traditional view regarding the importance, say, of the notion of geography as being the destiny of countries. Flesh that out for us, would you please? Absolutely. You know, there is this famous saying, it's really one of the oldest expressions we have in, in social science, and it's, you know, geography is destiny. And it's a very grave sounding expression. It, it has all of the connotations of being a really deep fundamental insight. But I have come through my research to realize that there is a far deeper force than this idea that our entire future is dictated simply by where we were born. And that is the degree to which we are connected. And connectivity sounds like such a loose concept, an ethereal concept to people, a wireless concept, you might say. You know, you can be connected through a wireless phone, after all, as most of us are. But right. the interesting thing is that connectivity is a very physical physical thing it is it, it emerges through all of the infrastructure that connects us all of the highways and the railways and the oil and gas pipelines and electricity grids and the ports and the airports and of course the fiber optic internet cables that are wrapped around the world hundreds of them that are all over the ocean floor i think of it like a ball of yarn wrapping itself around the world, all of this connectivity. So we have to remember that it's a physical thing. And not only that, it is really our legacy in the sense that those are lines on the map 
those lines of connectivity, those maps of infrastructure that I put in the, in the book Connectography, those maps show you our real world. It's the world that we have built. It's the world we want because no one is forcing us to spend trillions of dollars on highways and railways and pipelines and internet cables. There's something very, very deeply human to build connectivity, to want to connect, to live in cities, to cluster in cities as most of the world population has, and to focus our energy on making connections between these cities, whether it's airline connections, railway connections, trade connections, financial connections. And so it occurs to me that the deepest insight that you can really have about us and our collective will, our collective desire, our collective actions as people over not just one year or two years, I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of years, is that we have clearly been doing one thing consistently. We have been building connectivity to each other. And that really flies in the face of conventional wisdom, which if you look at a map of the world, a typical map of the world that hangs in our children's classrooms, in our offices, probably perhaps right in front of you right now as we speak, is probably a map whose only lines are borders, whose only lines show you how we have politically divided ourselves from each other um, over the years. But that is not those are not the only lines on the map. In fact, the most important lines, I believe, are those lines that connect us. And by not showing those maps, we are, we are really leading ourselves astray. We're not appreciating that there is something deeper than division that is, in fact, connectivity. So that's really the message of the book, Connectography. And, and I created, uh, you know, work with the most amazing um, cartographers to create these maps to really bring to life the reality of a world of connectivity. And that has enormous implications, obviously, for how we view ourselves, what our real basic instincts are, and what the virtues actually of a connected world are, which so many people take for granted. I mean, of course, you've discussed it on your program and already hinted at it today. We live in a world of a lot of um, disruption. People are anti-globalization, anti-technology, anti-capitalism. And what I try to demonstrate in the course of the argument is that you know the solution to the inequality in the world uh, is not cutting off globalization. It's not cutting off connectivity. The solution is having more connectivity. And I try to argue for all of the positive ways in which that is, in fact, happening in the world today. Devil's advocate would say the connectivity is really driven by capitalization, you know, by by the economic uh, system, whichever that might be. But uh, we generally think of it as just, you know, um, our method of, uh, of uh, monetary exchange. Do you think that that is the rudder that guides the boat? Or, I mean, I take from what you're saying that perhaps there is a deeper, maybe, you know, I hesitate on the use of this word, so I'll put it in quotes, soul urge uh, on behalf of humans to just connect with other humans, to, to enlarge the tribe. Well, let's be clear that I don't see that as some contradiction. When you were saying that, you know, there's a counter argument that we're just connecting to each other for capitalist purposes, that's not a counter argument at all. We connect to each other for many purposes. The original, when, when Babylonian tribes were building roads to connect to each other, sure, it was just to see what's out there. And then it was a realization that they have, you know, uh, resin and we have wine you know, and let's trade with each other, right? And let's learn from each other. And that's how that's how the history of diplomacy and contact among cultures began to expand. So capitalism was maybe one urge. Conquest was another urge. A lot of the infrastructure that we have in the world today, think of the famous Trans-Siberian Railway, um, you know, has been in order to conquer ever further distances more efficiently. Right. So a lot of infrastructure is there, has been, has served the purpose of conquest. But what does it also do? It actually extends the global economy, global connectivity, global society, global trade, comparative advantage. So I would strongly hesitate against you know, oversimplifying. Um, you know, we connect fundamentally because, sure, we want to discover each other. We may realize we want things from each other. It's not always a level playing field. You know, no one says that connectivity, I certainly never said connectivity is only a peaceful thing. It can have very violent consequences, um, but we have to appreciate the big picture and not just skew it in one direction or the other. It would seem to me in this day and age that it probably is the greatest preventative measure we have against uh, 
another war. But you have a YouTube video where you discuss just that, and our audience is going to get to see that in a break, and I have a hard break, so I'm going to do it now. We're speaking with Dr. Parag Khanna about his book, Technocracy in America. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at Parag Khanna. Now, that's spelled P-A-R-A-G-K-H-A-N-N-A dot com. Now, we have a video for you in the chat room, as I just mentioned, featuring our guest explanation of the possibilities of World War III. So if you're not in the chat room already, now is the time to get on over there, and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Parag Khanna about his book, Technocracy in America. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at paragkhanna.com. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So we just played some of one performed by you two. Tell us, Doctor, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are? Well, I certainly thought it would be an appropriate song for you and for this show, given your your theme, and uh, and no doubt, again, it reinforces the message that you uh, brought to the program uh, at the very, very beginning. I also like just about every U2 song. I've always been a huge fan of theirs, though I've only uh, seen them in concert once. Um, but, you know, I agree with you, actually, about the resonance of um, of, of music and, and the kind of effect that it has on uh on, on obviously on culture and on getting people to to be creative and to unlock inner creativity, but without getting too wonky, you know, there's pro- there's also research out there that shows that the stimulus that it can have on people, uh, the calming effect also that it can have on on people, even when played in public places and schools and so forth. And I think that's just early indications, you know, early research of the power. Uh, that music actually has on us psychologically. And I think that's uh, an amazing area to to explore. 
Well, thank you. You know, I happen to be doing that research right now, and we're writing a book mm-hmm. on that. So it is Great. It is a really amazing area. But, okay, let's get to your book. The essential claim of your new book is that American democracy is broken. So let's examine the reasons you think this is so and why you, what you offer is an alternative. So to that end, if we can, let's begin where the book begins, the diagnosis. Tell us how democracy may produce tyranny and share with us, if you will, while you're at it, the latest poll uh, regarding how people feel uh, with regard to the importance to live in a democracy. Yes, those are very interesting questions. So, you know, in, in political theory and political philosophy that really goes back to the great philosophers like Plato, there has always been a very deep concern expressed about just pure democracy, just the will of the people, uh, majority vote among people determining the actual politics and governance and decisions of a whole society because uh, minorities might not be protected or, um, you know, single issue, uh, smaller parties or interests could hijack the system or most of all, an uneducated and uninformed population could be seduced into bad or radical ideas. And so philosophers like Plato believed that democracy, in fact, was a final stage of a society before it potentially became became uh, sort of overtaken or overrun by tyranny or dictatorship. Now, we don't need to really go back 2,000 years in history to have this conversation. I just want to point out that it's something that has long been a concern. Now, the founding fathers as well, let's obviously bring it to America and let's go to a more recent context. The founding fathers were also concerned about what they themselves called mob rule. You know, what would happen if there was no electoral college, if the uh, legislative branch had too much power over the executive branch? You know, could it be that just the, you know, petty, uh, you know, the voices of petty people, which is a very sort of derogatory term, but that's actually the way in which um, our own founding founding fathers described uh, the predicament of simply letting democracy make all the decisions. And so many, many, many great scholars and philosophers have advocated that there needs to be a layer of authority, you know, again, whether it's the executive or the president or a group of wise men or scholars in a cabinet or an advisory function uh, who help to guide and to arbitrate and adjudicate and reconcile all the diverse cacophonous interests and voices of the public in order to shape a coherent and consensus-based policy. Now, who are those people? How do you choose them? And that's what I get at in this book. And that's what a technocracy is all about. A technocratic, first of all, just to be very clear, I don't want us to abandon democracy in favor of rule by elites. The model I put forward in this book is actually referred to as direct technocracy. And the direct part of the term refers to direct democracy. Direct democracy, of course, means I very deeply prize and elevate the voice of the people, so much so that I open one of the chapters of the book and I say, if you want a truly democratic society, then voting should be mandatory. Voting should be compulsory. If you want to educate citizens and um, and make sure that they are informed about what's happening in the society, it should be required to vote. And then people will educate themselves before they go into the ballot box. So I'm there's no deeper believer that the people know their own circumstances best and should actually, um, you know, articulate them. And the more elections you have or the more public opinion surveys you do, the more you listen to social media and gather people's viewpoints, the better. That is all part of democracy. But then what? Now you're in a situation where you've got 300 million voices saying, I like immigration, I don't like immigration. Uh, you know, I want lower taxes, I want higher taxes. I want health care universally, I don't want health care universally, right? Um, who's going to make the decisions at the end of the day? The reason why you ask the question, you know, why are surveys showing that Americans, and not just Americans, but Canadians, French, Germans, British people, the citizens of the most sophisticated, wealthy, advanced, Western, democratic societies, 
especially young people, millennials, are saying they're fed up with democracy. They're sick of their current governments. They're not only sick of their current governments, they're disenchanted with the type of government they have, which is democracy. And a very worryingly large percentage of young people in our country, let's be clear, I'm not talking about some hypothetical model, I'm talking about reality today. And can you blame them? are very, very dissatisfied with the type of government they have. So it's not just about saying, throw the bums out, let's replace this set of politicians with another set of politicians. No, what they're saying is far more deep and disturbing. What they're saying is the system itself is the problem, not just the people who are currently in it. And so there is very, very evidently a deep desire among our people and the people all over the world, quite frankly, these surveys have been done everywhere to have a better type of government, not just a different leader. So again, this is not about Trump. This is not about Obama. This is about the way in which our government is structured, the way in which whatever it is that the people want, they certainly don't feel that they're getting it. Um, they certainly see lots of flip-flopping. They see lots of corruption and special interest capture. All of that is part of the structure of our government. All of these things that are allowed to happen because of how our government is structured, how the constitution is, and so on. So my goal was to put together a system, you know, again, I'm calling it direct technocracy, in which you absolutely have front and center the interests, the voices of the people, but the, the, the government has to be measured. It must be measured by to the extent to which it is improving the welfare of the maximum number of people. And that is what is called utilitarianism. I was pleased to hear Peter Singer in your, uh, in your ad spot there just a few minutes ago. Great Australian philosopher, a very strong representative of this position, this philosophy of utilitarianism, where what is government for if not to maximize the welfare for the greatest number of people? And you can look at our policies. Where are we spending on infrastructure or not spending? Who is getting funding for education? What is our immigration policy? Where are we uh, in investing our, our resources? Who's getting health care? Well, those are not just random philosophical musings. Those are measurable, measurable propositions. Are our policies maximizing the quality of life or enabling greater freedom of choice or of achievement for the maximum number of the exactly 310 million people that live in the United States of America. And I'll be damned if you can't measure that, because you can. And, and that's what I'm out to do, is to say that if you had a government whose uh, agencies, whose bureaucracies were not disempowered, were not underfunded, were not really robbed of their capacity to do their job, which is really what's happened in the US since the 1970s. It's also what's happened in the, in the United Kingdom as well. Then we would do a better job of measuring if we're really delivering on the needs of the American people. And because we've lost sight of that, we are in the situation we're in right now. Have we provided trade adjust? Have we provided assistance for workers who've lost their jobs to outsourcing? in the last uh, 30 or 40 years, not nearly enough, right? We spend 0.15% right. uh, of our GDP on retraining workers who have lost their jobs. In Denmark, they spend like 3% of their GDP on that. So have we been helping our people, even though our people have been crying for help? No, we have not. And we can precisely trace the fact that we have not been supporting those people to the fact that they're fed up with the system. And so they vote either out of protest or because they like Trump, whatever the reason, they're voting for populist platforms and candidates. So we have only ourselves to blame. How are we going to fix it? You know, I'm interested in solutions, right? This is not a book of just criticism. Uh, you know, my, my sole purpose is to try and make strong, concrete suggestions on what we would do better, what we would do differently. And it certainly starts with taking the issues about which there is a national consensus. Remember that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump both said we need better infrastructure. Our airports, our roads, and so forth are falling apart. Well, if that's a consensus issue, why aren't we doing it, right? What are the, what are the intervening forces or interests that are getting in the way? And I'm trying to say there are certain things where once you agree on them, you pass the task on independent agencies to get the job done. You don't half build a road every two years or fund a project, an infrastructure project for one year and then cancel the funding the next year because that's why the people are angry. 
and you go issue by issue and you try and create a consensus and then you implement it and you get things done. And that's no longer the country we are. That's no longer the way the government is structured, but it can be structured that way. So I take the lessons from around the world. I look at what they're doing in Germany and Switzerland and Singapore and Finland, uh, all over the world to look for those examples of how they manage to overcome politics and focus on policy. And I think there's lots of things we can do. Uh, you, you know, you promised a provocative show. Uh, as you know from the book, it's got very provocative ideas like replacing the Senate with an assembly of governors um, because governors are uh, deservedly far more popular leaders in the country. They actually govern their states. They actually know in great detail whether or not certain policies work or don't work. They share lessons and they cooperate with each other across their state lines and boundaries. They do all the things that senators, quite frankly, don't do. Um, and so I've got lots of ideas like that in the book. You do. It's chock-a-block full, actually, and, and uh, it, it, it's a challenging read, but it makes it, it makes a lot of sense. One of your ideas in the book, and I'm going to ask you to you know, share it with our audience, has to do with the Office of Presidency, uh, a roundtable opposed to uh, the single leader. Tell us how that would work, how you see that work. Explain it for us, please. Oh, I'm glad you brought up this one, Ellen, because this is uh, one of my one of my favorites. And uh, again, in the real world, uh, there are countries that don't have one president. They actually have seven. They have what's called a collective presidency. Seven seems like just a lucky number to people. It doesn't have to be seven. It can be five. It can be nine. But the point is that instead of just one guy or woman sitting behind the you know behind an oak table in the Oval Office having to juggle all these issues, you know, foreign policy, domestic policy, uh, economic issues, all these things. Um, instead, you have a committee. You have a committee-like structure. It's like a management board. However, they're all elected. They're all elected representatives. And this is what they have in Switzerland. They take, the se- they take seven people from four different political parties and they together are the presidency of the country. And Switzerland, no one would say, is a not a democratic country. It is the oldest democracy in the world. It's had democracy since the 13th century, since before America was discovered. Um, you know, they have plebiscites and uh, and and, uh, and popular uh, initiatives um, in every village. You know, every other week. So this is truly the the world's oldest, continuous, most successful democratic society. And in that country, it's so interesting, um, since there are seven presidents at any given time, and this is a highly educated population uh, in Switzerland, uh, most people can't name even three or four out of the seven, because actually they don't really care. They're totally, they're interested just in the issues. And amongst those seven, it rotates every year who the sort of the, the chief or the first among equals is for any given year. And you could have rotation within the parties as to who is who is representing that party amongst the seven. So it's totally depoliticized. People go into the job knowing that I might just be a quote unquote president of the country for just a year. And I better make the most of it. I better play ball with these other six people rather than coming across as you know narrow-minded and uncooperative because then I'll just get thrown out or they won't listen to me. So they learn to cooperate from the get-go. They learn to be humble because no one is really better than the others for or, or you know and um, and nothing will get done without consensus and if you don't get it done you'll all get blamed and you'll all use, lose your jobs in the next election. And so this and the, the best part about it is of course as I say pretty bluntly in the book Seven heads are better than one, right? Can is one right. person really so smart that they can understand everything that's going on in the world at the same time? Of course not. So why not have seven different voices, right? Why not have seven different backgrounds and expertise? And remember what I just said: we only have two political parties in America. They do this with, uh, they do this with um, four or five political parties, right? And Switzerland has never had the kind of stasis or gridlock that we have had. Because everyone realizes that whether you have three or four more percentage points or 10 or 15 more percentage points than the other parties, um, you're only going to be able to keep your advantage if you are seen as a cooperative leader. So this is what's called a collective presidency. Uh, Switzerland has it. Other parliamentary systems also have it where the cabinet is not just friends of the president. It's not just an echo chamber 
where you want to be loyal to the president because he could fire you the next day. Um, instead, these are all elected people, so you can't just get rid of them, right? You have to work together. So this is what I think is a better model for the executive branch, and I would love to see us. I don't know how we're going to get there, but I really, this is one of the ideas that I, I wish I could uh, just wake up tomorrow or snap my fingers and we would do it. You know, I, I guess that brings me to the question uh, that you've obviously asked yourself many times. Um, how would you bring about the, this kind of change? I mean, governors are in the Senate and, and you have a round table or, or a shared presidency, a collective presidency, uh, as you say. Uh, I assume we have something in the House of Representatives that you haven't dealt with. How would you go about bringing that all uh, about? I mean, right. So I try to tackle this, you know, in a not so technical way in the book. I say, look, actually, you know, the cabinet, for example, which has so many different positions and seats, you could combine certain agencies together, you know, maybe like defense and intelligence, infrastructure and commerce uh, and, and, and so forth, um, education and research, all this kind of thing. You could actually pare down the number of agencies and you could, um, you know, choose out of the 10 or 12 that you have five or six that are really, you know, central, core, strategic and have those um, six other people elevated, if you will, into this inner circle. So you have a kind of a one plus six, you know, you have a directly elected president. And of course, I would abolish the Electoral College. Uh, I shouldn't say, of course, but I, I think it should. It's a fairly natural, logical thing to do at this point. Um, and you would have an elected, directly elected president, but you would also have these six uh, cabinet members representing these key strategic areas, and they would be collectively making decisions. I mean, the president obviously has final say, but he would be taking this input from a diverse kind of you know set set of people, and they wouldn't all be appointed by him. Uh, the key thing is again with the role of quali qualification and expertise really really matters. You could require that in the cabinet that you have a certain number of people that come from the Senate or the House or from governors or from the civil service of the country uh, so that you make sure that the people are not simply pliant, you know, don't have to do the president's bidding uh, because they can't necessarily be fired if they are, um, uh, if they are, uh, you know, uh, elected by the people, right? So I think that there is a way to evolve, if you will, towards this system um, without necessarily, I mean, uh, maybe it could require, maybe it would require an amendment to the Constitution. Maybe some of these things could be done without that. But I do see a, a path that gets us towards a much more, you know, again, sort of collective, rational, educated and informed way of running the executive branch. Okay, let's let's talk about the educated. I, I'm not sure I'm with you on the Electoral College, just simply because that would mean people from Wyoming, you know, so some states like Wyoming and, and Alabama, are they're just simply not going to get visited by candidates. They're, the candidates are going to spend all their times in states like California and New York. But that's another issue. I'm, I'm, I'm only saying I'm not sure how that one plays for me. But you you just introduced an idea that that has to do with the quality of these people. Explain to us what you mean by a meritocracy. Yeah, well, I mean, meritocracy is, a, is a, quite frankly, not really a controversial term. We like to think that we do live in a meritocracy, a society where, um, you know, people are selected, chosen, promoted based on the quality of their work, the quality of their thinking, uh, you know, their their objective performance, whether it's test results or the judgment of their peers or scholars or teachers. That's a meritocracy, you know, where you're not promoted based on what your last name is, who you're related to, the connections you have or corruption. Um, so we like to think that we live in a meritocratic system. In many ways, of course, we unfortunately don't because a lot of people don't have access to the kinds of opportunities that people who are more well-off do. But fundamentally, uh, it's something to aspire to, is to be a meritocratic society where the best and the brightest, if you will, uh, come to the front. 
and uh, and and can and are qualified and knowledgeable enough to take on leadership positions. You can judge people by their academic knowledge. You can judge them by their emotional temperament. Right? There are many different ways you can construct it. And in Singapore, it's a very uh, elite-run country. They have highly educated people, but they're changing the criteria. They're saying, you know what? To be uh, meritocratically selected, to be one of our top technocrats, you also need some on-the-ground experience. We want to bring people in who've done time volunteering, who've done social work, who've been in civil society, not just people who have PhDs and have been bankers, right? So you can change the criteria to represent the kinds of values and virtues that you want to promote. But anyway, you should have some kind of system for judging that people are really qualified to take on the public trust. I'll tell you what I'd like. I'd like to see that we had some kind of system to judge all the voters as well. And I'd like to that, see that uh, everybody amen. everybody reads your book, Technocracy in America. I'd, I'd really like to see that happen because these ideas are, you know, they're, there's a fundamental problem in the country. I think we all recognize it, and that means there needs to be a solution. And the only way we can work out these solutions is to struggle with all the alternatives, and there are many in this book that just make a lot of sense. I want to thank you, Dr. Kana, for joining us today and for being willing to share your ideas. Uh, take just a minute and tell everybody how they can reach out and, and get a copy of your book or contact you. Well, yeah, you mentioned uh, my website, paragkhanna.com, P-A-R-A-G-K-H-A-N-N-A, and there you've got all the books and links to all the books and um, uh, my contact information as well. And, um, you know, I, I, I write a lot of articles, so there's, you know, abbreviated versions of all of these arguments out there. I, I write columns for, uh, for CNN, for Quartz, uh, for a wide range of publications, so I'm always involved uh, pretty actively in these debates. Um, but, uh, yep, all the whole CV and all the books are right there. And it's great. Again, read the book, Technocracy in America. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.